Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Addictive Pod. I'm your host, Adrian, and today I have a guest with an amazing story of recovery from drugs and alcohol use. And he has not one, but several moments in this story that are just completely inexplicable. And I'm really curious what you guys think about this, how you experienced listening to his story, because I know for me it was it was pretty incredible just to hear what he goes through and the things that happen on his journey of recovery. This story involves several descriptions of suicide attempts, just as a as a warning. And we also talk about a lot of positive things. We talk about how to survive and thrive in rehab, what life is like after coming out of rehab, and the gifts that can come from being sober. Please join me in welcoming my guest today, Tim Lodgen. All right, Tim, welcome to the Addictive Pod. Good to meet you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, Adrian. Glad to be here. How many podcasts do you think you've done in the last year? Um, in the last seven months, I've done 25. Wow. I, I only started doing them about, uh, about three, four months into my sobriety. Wow. And and what led you to take that step? Because I know a lot of people might be nervous about sharing their story or they might not think that it's even worth it to share their story. What what motivated you to take that step? Um, when, when I first got sober, I, I didn't want to share. Um, I shared in the meetings that I went to because I was told in rehab to share when you're when you're picked on because you never know who's in the room and you never know what you're going to say might help that person for that day. So I always shared if they, if they picked on me, I got, even if I was nervous because the meetings I go to, they make you come up to the front of the meeting, stand at a podium and face everybody Jeez. and speak. Yeah. And, uh, the first couple of times I was nervous, man. I really, I stumbled over my words. I didn't know what to say, but I started to get comfortable sharing my story and it really helped me personally get over a lot of stuff. So about three months in, I started like following people on Instagram recovery wise, and I started watching podcasts and I was like, wow, you know what? Maybe I could do this. Maybe I could message some people and get my story out there to possibly help those still suffering. And, um, I literally went down the podcast recovery page and messaged like 50 podcasts and it took about a couple of weeks, but then I started getting responses back, started getting responses back. And now I, I literally open up my, my inboxes and there's podcasts asking me to come wow. on and speak. And I, I still message people. Yeah. But um, like last week, I got three of them that I'd never messaged. I didn't know who they were. And they asked me to come on. I was like, absolutely. So that's where it started. And I'm just going to continue to share as much as possible to help those suffering. You you have an amazing story to share, so I'm really excited to get into it. And where where does it all begin? Where do you want to to start this story? Do you want to start uh, before the Marines? Do you want to start like first being introduced to drinking, or what's a good spot to start? Um, I first got yeah. I mean, I'll start right before the Marines because that's when I first started drinking. Um, you know, I I was an athlete my whole life. Um, football, baseball. I was an, I was a Golden Glove boxer, uh, Junior Olympic boxer. Um, I was I was almost a professional skateboarder. Um, I grew up with Brandon Novak um, and Bucky Lasik, and um, I'm from Baltimore, so we all skated around. I was on a bunch of teams, and I was I was really into athletics. And my ninth grade year of high school, one of my friends had a had, a, had like a freshman party, and I went there. That's the first time I ever drank, and I got so sick. Like I was the next day, I was hungover. I was throwing up. And, um, my mom knew I drank and, um, she, we were having this big party and she made me shuck like 50 ears of corn for the party. And she was like, you did it to yourself. You're going to shuck all these ears of corn. She goes, and here's a bag for you throwing up, but get them all done. And I didn't drink again until senior year. Like I, I was like, I'm not drinking ever again. Like it just sucked. But senior year came around and, um, I kind of was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to go to a party and have a couple beers. And I started to like it. Now I, I'm, I'm really, you know, now that I'm sober and I'm looking back at a lot of things, I started to realize that I was doing it to fit in. You know, all my friends were drinking, all my friends were smoking pot. Um, so I was like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to have some fun. So I did. But when I started to drink, 
I quickly noticed that I didn't drink like them. Um, I drank a lot more um, till I passed out or threw up or got into physical altercations. I drank to an excess at 17 years old where my friends would just drink on Fridays and Saturdays. I would find myself cutting school during the week and going and drinking or going and getting high. And um, once I started doing that, I stopped doing everything else. All my extracurricular activities stopped. I stopped skateboarding, I stopped boxing. Um, and I started to hang out with the guys that like to cut class and go get high during the day and just do what they wanted. And that's, I, I, at that time, I just thought, you know what, it's a phase, man. You know, I'm going into Marines next year. Let me have some fun and let me just get out of my system. Because I wasn't going to college. My grades weren't that good. So I was like, I'm already going into Marines. I signed up my uh, 11th, 11th grade of high school, signed up for it. And um, I was like, let me get it out of my system. So I joined the Marines at 18. And obviously, I, the drug stopped at that point. Um, but once I got into the Marines, the drinking escalated by like 10. Hmm. Like we were 18, 19, 20 years old. And the motto of the bars that surrounded the base were, if you're old enough to take a bullet for this company, country you're old enough to have a cold beer they kind of have a point but that can destroy a lot of lives <laughs> it it did and you yeah. know their, their only rule was you couldn't stand at the bar with a beer in your hand you had to have it on a table or the bar in case the authorities walked in so you could say it wasn't yours you could say it wasn't yours because you weren't physically caught holding it but you yeah. could they would they would serve you all night long didn't matter you just couldn't physically sit there and hold it and um, we took full advantage of that, man. I mean, we really did. And all of us, not just me, but we all drank like I did. We went till we threw up, passed out, or got into fights. And we would see our sergeants out at the bars. And they would be doing the same thing. And at 18, 19, and 20 years old, you're looking up to these guys and you're like, well, this is what we're meant to, this is what we're supposed to be doing. So let's do it. And the only thing was just make sure you're up at three o'clock in the morning to go running three miles. We don't care how late you stay out, just right. be in formation at three o'clock and be ready to go. And that's what we did. And um, after being in the Marines for two and a half years, um, you know, I, I get home and things set in. Um, I realized I wasn't in the Marine Corps anymore. Um, you know, I was 20 years old. I had to start looking for a job. I had to start taking care of myself. And... My depression sitting. Um, I was diagnosed with bipolar at the age of 14. Um, so I was on medicine all through high school, but it never really worked. Well, actually, no, that's a lie. It worked for the first two years because on the third year, I started drinking and drugging, and that's when it didn't work. It's only now that I'm sober, and um, I look back at all the statistics on how my, my use of my medicine didn't work. It's all due to alcohol and drugs because... It doesn't matter what you're taking. If you if you have alcohol and drugs in your system, it's not going to work. It's just plain simple. It's not going to do what it's meant to do. Um, so I got home and, uh, you know, I didn't tell them I had bipolar because I wouldn't have been able to be in the service. So I, when I got home, um, I hadn't been on medicine for two and a half years. So when I got home, I went to a really deep depression because I really didn't know what I was going to do with the rest of my life at that point. I had figured to be on the, in the, in the service for a while and I got really depressed. Um, I started thinking about everything. You know, what am I going to do? It really brought me into a deep, dark place. And I found myself with my stepfather's gun in my lap. And I was contemplating using it at the age of 20. Um, luckily, I had a girlfriend at that time. And I, told, I called her and I told her what I was doing. And she came over and, and helped me put it back. And we got through that. I told my mom I was depressed. I never told her about the gun situation until years, years later. But I told her I was depressed and I, and I felt like um, maybe committing suicide. And we got back into the doctors and I started using medicine. But I was still drinking at that point. And I started smoking pot again and started doing some other drugs. Um, I never got into anything hard, but I was doing pain pills, smoking pot, doing LSD. Um, so from the age of 22 all the way up until the age of 44, for the next 20 years, I drank, I smoked pot, took pain pills, um, and I took them in excess. You know, if they say take one every four hours, I would take four every two hours. You know, I wouldn't just pick up 
a couple beers, I'd pick up a 12-pack or a case. And I would drink it until it was empty. I wouldn't just have a couple. If I bought a 12-pack, all 12 were getting drank. That's just right. that's just how I drank. Um, and four years ago, I'm, I'm going to speed it up a little bit because I, I drank like that for 20 years. At, at this point, I had three kids. I was drinking every day. Um, I couldn't keep a job. Uh, I'm 45. I've had 46 jobs since getting wow. out of the Marine Corps. And it's all due to my mental illness and addiction because I just couldn't hold a job. And I always thought, well, you know, forget that place. It just wasn't meant for me. I'll go, for, I'll go someplace else. I never was putting it together that it was my bipolar and my addiction, which was making me lose these jobs. So at the age of 41, I had uh, about seven surgeries within two years. Um, at, I'll back up a little bit. At the age of 37, I started doing mixed martial arts. And I started fighting and competing in the cage. Wow. And at the, at the age of 41, I had torn my rotator cuff. I had two neck surgeries, two hernia operations. I had a compartment syndrome in my forearm. I had to have major surgery on that. So had and you been doc- pretty athletic throughout that 20-year period? Had you been working out, doing boxing, anything like that? Or was it just 37, you got back into it? I was always working out. I always went to the gym. I always was physically fit. Um, but I, I never... I never boxed. I never did anything like that. At the age of 32, um, I told my wife, you know, I really miss competing. I want to go fight again. And she said, go ahead. So for, from 32 to 37, I got back into the gym with doing boxing, jujitsu, gotcha. judo, Muay Thai. I was doing everything. Amazing. And I just like that competitive. I, 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 there's something about competing one-on-one with somebody. It's just, it's unmatched for me. For me, it's just like the ultimate high, um, you know, coming out, to four or 5,000 people screaming your name and lights going off and music is better than any drug or any alcohol I've ever taken in my wow. life. It is incredible. The rush of adrenaline that you get is, is just unmatched. Um, so I've really enjoyed that. But at the age of 37, I had to have all these surgeries. And my wife was like, you're done. She's like, this is a young man's game. You're all, you know, three years, you'll be 40. Just, you had your, you had your fun. You had your run, cut it out. And these doctors were giving me all this medicine man, just over and over. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't come down on my milligrams. I, you know, there was at 10, 15 milligrams and I was taking, I would go through a bottle of 30 in like a week. So I was taking, you know, three times what I was supposed to be taking during the week. And I was drinking on top of that. Wow. So I would take four or five, 10 or 15 Percocets or hydrocodones, whatever, or oxys, whatever they were giving me. And I would drink on top of it. And it started to actually scare me because I would tell myself, this is how somebody dies. Yeah, that's you know, so dangerous. That's mixing yeah, that. Taking this pain medicine and drinking to the excess of what I was drinking, this is how somebody dies in their sleep because yeah. you pass out and you just don't wake up. And I didn't want to live that way anymore. The pain of being an addict and an alcoholic and the disappointing my family and my and my and my mom and my kids, my wife, I couldn't take it anymore. I just wanted the pain to stop. I wanted it to end. So one night I, I had about, I think it was about 18 because I counted. I had 18 Percocets left in the bottle. And I took all 18 of them. And I drank a 12-pack of beer. And I remember saying, please don't let me wake up because I can't live this way anymore. And I can't stop. I don't know how to. And I woke up the next day. That next day, I threw out all the pain medicine. I don't know what told me to do it, but I had another bottle and I threw it all out. And I haven't taken pain medicine since almost five years, going on five years. What, what was going through your head that morning? Was it was it some idea about, oh, maybe I'm meant to be alive. Maybe I'm meant to do something. Or what was going through your mind? That is exactly what popped in my head. When yeah. I woke up this mo- that next morning, I was like, wow. Maybe I, I, I do have a reason to be here. Maybe I have a purpose. Because that dude, that, 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 would kill, that would kill a lot of people just yeah. like that. But also, I also do believe from taking it for so many years, my tolerance had built up. And <laughs> love- <laughs> dude, Your whole story is like that. Like you, you, being able to physically handle some of this stuff is just a testament of the tolerance you built up and then also your physical fitness probably at the time. I don't know. I'm sure. A hundred percent, man. Absolutely. I, I, I I don't discount that at all. That's absolutely probably it. And, um, which again tells me that I'm here for a reason. 
Yeah. Which then again tells me that's why I was built this way to handle as much pain, to be able to come back from it and to share my story. Um, and, and I woke up that next day, I threw out the rest of what I had and, um, I haven't touched pain medicine since I was sick as a dog for a week. Like the whole flu symptom, the whole sickness you get coming off of opioids. I was completely sick. Wow. And I remember looking in the mirror and being like, I'm never going through this again. Cause it was like hell. It was awful for like five days. And I remember looking at myself, crying, looking in the mirror and be like, I'm never doing this again. I'm never touching pain medicine again, but it didn't cross my mind to stop drinking. Right. Drinking I helped you through that probably. Yeah, I was like, I'm just not doing pain medicine anymore. I'm yeah. doing, but I'm going to keep drinking. And to me, I was like, that's kind of a win because you know I can still drink. But now I, I stopped. I stopped this one. This yeah, one I stopped that but dangerous I'll, stuff. Yeah, but I'll be good with the alcohol because that's not going to kill me like opioids. Exactly. Does. Yeah. You know, so I that's when my drinking really escalated because I was looking for the replacement of how the opioids and the alcohol made me feel. And just drinking beer at that point wasn't doing it. So I switched to whiskey and I stopped drinking beer and I went to drink fire. I started drinking fireball whiskey. Um, and my addictive personality in my mind was don't get a big bottle of the fireball because then I'll know exactly how much I'm drinking. So get the miniatures. So I would go in and buy a sleeve of miniatures, which is 10 in a pack. And I would drink 10 and be done that before one o'clock in the afternoon and find myself back in the liquor store, getting another 10 at the end of my addiction. I was drinking 25 of those miniatures a day. And I poured out one of the bottles one day and each one of them equals two and a half shots. I was about to ask they're around two, two and a half. Wow. Two and and a half. And I was drinking 25 of those a day. If I measured it now, I, I really don't, honestly don't want to know how much alcohol I was drinking because that's it's a huge amount of alcohol. Yeah, that's um, serious liver damage. It, it was. It was. And, you know, I found myself, again, not wanting to live. And I, I took a ride. through. We have this beautiful reservoir here in Maryland and where everybody goes fishing and hiking and walks their dogs and does picnics. And I took this beautiful ride and... I'm crying and I'm hitting the steering wheel and I'm yelling up at the sky and I'm like, why am I here? I can't stop drinking. I'm a piece of shit father, husband, son, and I can't keep a job. Like, what's my purpose? I just need a sign from something that tells me I'm here for a reason because I can't live this way anymore and I don't know how to stop drinking. And I get around to this tree where um, in 1996, my best friend had lost control of his car and passed away by hitting the tree. And they have a little visual on the tree. You got a book there and you can place flowers and they have a picture of him on the tree. And I stopped at the tree and I said, Bill, I said, I don't know what to do. I'm lost. You know, I can't live this way anymore. I just need to know that I'm not alone. I just need to know that something out there is watching over me. And I'm here for a reason because I, I'm lost. I don't know why I'm here. And, and I don't know. I don't want to live this way anymore. So I go to leave the reservoir. And at this point, I'm like hysterically crying. I could barely see. So I pull over on the side of the road. But instead of pulling on the right-hand side where you would leave, I pull off to the left-hand side on oncoming traffic and I park the car. And I'm sitting there for about 10 minutes. And uh, this car pulls up. And I watch this man get out of the car and he's got his dog and he's about to go walk over by the water and walk his dog. And I look up and I realized it was my best friend who passed away. It was his father whom I hadn't seen since 1996, the day of the funeral. So I get out and I look at him. I said, Mr. Bill. And he's like, Timmy, what's wrong? And I fell to the curb and I was crying. He's like, what's going on? And I said, I'm an alcoholic. I can't stop. You know, I just want the pain to go away. I feel lost. I don't know why I'm here. And he comes over to me and he puts his hand on my shoulder. And he says, Tim, I'm not even supposed to be here this morning. My wife came to me in a dream last night and told me to come to Verlockraven Reservoir at 10 a.m. to walk the dog. He said, I was supposed to leave this morning at 6 a.m. to go to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina for vacation. 
but my wife came to me in a message last night and told me to come here this morning. He goes, I truly believe I was sent here this morning to speak to you. And I looked at him. I said, Mr. Bill, I, I just stopped at Billy's tree and asked him to send me a sign to tell me I wasn't alone and I had a purpose. And we just hugged. And, That's and, unbelievable. And, dude, I still to this day cannot explain that. And yeah. I know at that point I wasn't alone. But that wasn't enough to stop me from drinking. That was March 16th, 2017, because I'll never forget that day. I drank for the next four years. And I drank the heaviest and the most I ever drank in my life. And my addictive personality told me, well, you're being watched. Nothing can happen to you. You can still drink. Oh, so it was almost the opposite effect. Yes. It was like, it because was, I was, have this purpose, I can I can just do whatever, and you really let loose. Right. I was like, yeah. I'm being protected. Nothing's going to happen to me. I can just continue to do what I'm doing. Yeah. It was almost like I had a, an angel watching me, and I was going to be all right. So I didn't yeah. have to make any changes. That is the craziest you know, thing. Yeah, well, that's that's the addictive, that's, that's the, addictive the demon thing, of, yeah. of addiction. Absolutely. And um, so last year... Uh, March 5th last year, the week before I went to rehab, um, I bought a brand new truck. I went to the liquor store. I hit something. I don't, I still don't know what I hit. I had no recollection. And I come home and I told my wife, I just hit something. I'm going to bed and I go to sleep and I wake up the next morning. I'm like, I'm going to go get milk and water. And she said, how are you going to do that? I said, in my truck, she goes, go look at your truck in the driveway. So I go out into the driveway and my right tire's hanging off. My side mirror's smashed in and it's gone. And uh, she said, what did you, what happened last night? I said, I don't know. She said, you don't remember, do you? And I said, no. She said, Tim, I, you could have killed somebody or yourself. She said, you can't stay here anymore. You have to leave and go figure this out. I don't want you here anymore. I said, okay. So I packed up some stuff. I called my friend and I said, hey, can I come to your house for a couple of days? You know, let things blow over. You know, and she'll let me back in in a couple of days. I just can't stay here for right now. And he's like, sure, man, come over. And I get to his house and his solution was, well, you ain't got to go home for a couple of days. You want to go to the bar? I'm right. like, hell yeah. You know what? Let's just go to the bar and drink right. because now I'm kicked out of my house. I wrecked my truck and, you know, things were looking pretty bad. So I wanted to forget about all that. So let's go to mm-hmm. the bar. We go to the bar and I'm leaving and... I rear end somebody wow. this, the next day and um, I get out and I look at the guy. I'm like, are you okay? Cause I'm okay. I said, your car is actually okay. The front of my bumper was pretty messed up. I was like, um, if you're okay, your car's okay. I'm out of here. I slapped him on his back. I got my truck and I took off cause I was drunk and I knew I was going to jail. So I left and I get back to my buddy's house. I'm like, dude, I can't stay here. I, I gotta go be by myself. I left his house, stopped at the liquor store, got a whole sleeve of Fireball, and I went and parked at a parking ride at the mall for two days. Turned off my phone, listened to sad-ass music, and drank for two days. I was wallowing in my sorrows. I was thinking about everything that I just did and how bad my life had just gotten. And my solution was to drink and forget about everything. On the second day of me sitting in my truck, I turned my phone on at 7 after 10. At 9 after 10, Brandon Novak calls me. Two minutes after having my phone off for 48 hours, calls me. He says, Lodging, what the F are you doing? I said, I'm in my car, man. I'm, I'm drunk. I'm tired. I'm hungry. I'm cold. And he said, good. That's what you need. He said, I just talked to your mom and your wife. We have a plane ticket set for you this evening at 8.30 p.m. to go down to West Palm Beach, Florida, Banyan Treatment Centers to go get help. He said, I promise you, everything that you've lost will come back to you 10 times fold as long as you get on that plane and go to treatment. I'm like, okay, man, I, you know, I'll, I'll go, I'll go. Hang up the phone. And like 20 minutes later, my wife calls me. She's like, Tim, I just got off the phone with Brandon. Please come home, pack your bags, take a shower, try to eat something and take a nap before you have to get on the plane. I'm like, okay, I'll do that. So I go home. I couldn't eat because at this point, you know, I drank for two days. I hadn't eaten. Um, I was now nervous and, and had anxiety about going to rehab. 
And I wasn't sure that I really still wanted to go at that point. So my stomach was all jacked up. And I sit on the edge of the bed. And I'm just replaying everything that had led me up to this point. And um, I go down to the basement. And I throw a rope around my neck. And I stand up on a bucket. And uh, I guess about three minutes go by. And my wife noticed I wasn't in the bedroom. And she comes down to the basement. And she sees me in the corner of the basement. And she says, what are you doing? I said, I can't do this anymore. I just want the pain to stop. She said, please, please get down. Do you know what this will do to your children? You can go get help. Just please get down and everything will be okay. So I get down and I I fall to the floor and I, I sat down in the basement for like 10 minutes crying. And I go back upstairs and I call my buddy Brandon. I'm like, hey man, I was like, uh, I'm ready. I'm going tonight. I said, if I don't go, I'm going to kill myself. And, and all he says was, I'm proud of you. I love you. Call me when you get past security so that I know you're getting on that plane and not leaving in a taxi after you get dropped off. I said, okay. So I get to get to the airport to get past security. And I call him. I say, hey man, I'm past security. I got about 30, 40 minutes till the plane goes off. And I just want to let you know I'm, I'm ready to go. And all he says is, I'm proud of you. I love you. Goodbye. And he hangs up. So I get off the phone with him. And I go to sit down at the seat before the plane takes off. And I sit down. And this overwhelming feeling of hope comes over my entire body. All my anxiety went away. All my fear went away. All my depression went away. And something in my head said, everything is going to be all right. It was the most amazing experience I've ever had in my life. I now know that it didn't come from me. It came from someplace else. Something told me that everything was going to be okay. And that this was the time in my life that it was time for me to get help and I was going to get it. So I get the treatment. I go in full addictive mode. Like, I didn't miss any meetings. I went to extra meetings that they had for uh, military service members. I journaled. I shared. and I shared. Um, you know, I did everything that they asked me to do. I went in both feet in, into recovery in my um, rehabilitation center. I did 32, day, 32 days there. And when I came out, it... I was a different person after 32 days. I'm now even more of a different person a year and two weeks sober than I was the 32 days of rehab. But when I came home, I, I, you know, they instilled 90 and 90, do 90 and 90. And when I was in rehab, I was like, how the hell am I going to do 90 and 90? And the guy looked at me, he said, did you drink and drug every day? And I was like, of course. He goes, how many hours a day? I said, oh, at least four or five. He goes, and you're telling me you don't have one hour for your sobriety that would save your life? Exactly. And I was like, oh, shit, you got me. Okay. Okay, very good. So I came out. I actually did 98 and 90. I, I, nice. I, did, I did seven or eight. I did eight or nine a week for the first three months. A couple a couple doubles in there? Uh, yeah, a couple on Saturdays and Sundays I would do doubles. Yeah. And nice. um, I started to realize that I didn't want – to have a bad taste about recovery and meetings. So I wanted to start balancing my life out. I wanted to start getting back into the gym and doing physical exercise. I wanted to have time with my family. I worked, I had a job, so I had to have time for work. So I went from seven to eight days to nine days a week to four days a week. And then about, I did that for about four or five months. And about four or five months into my sobriety, you know, something that I've always wanted to do as a child was be a bodybuilder. I always wanted to do a bodybuilding competition. Growing up, um, my mother never did drugs. My father was a police officer. He never did drugs. And my mother was actually a professional bodybuilder right. um, in the in the eighties. So I, I grew up around that, and I always saw it. My uncle 
was Mr. Universe three times. My Whoa. my cousin was uh, Mr. Maryland. Like I had some big heavy hitters in my family in bodybuilding, and I've always wanted to do that. But drugs and alcohol has got my way. But I, that's why I think I really liked going to the gym and always doing physical activity because a lot of people in my family are athletes and um, or bodybuilders, and we just that's just how my family was. So about four or five months into my sobriety, I was like, you know what? I'm 45. I'm not getting any younger. I'm mentally right now. I'm taking the medicine that the doctors prescribed me in rehab. Everything's working. Let's go for this. Let's really try this. So about four or five months in, I started going to the gym six days a week. I changed my diet completely. Um, so I go to work now. I come home. I go to the gym. I spend time with my family. And I go to three meetings on the weekends. I got one on Saturday morning, one Sunday morning, and one Sunday evening. And for me, that balances my life out. I get my physical activity in, my mental stability for the meetings, and my spiritualness hanging out with my family. Because to me, I think you need all three, mental, physical, and spiritual, to be able to stay sober in recovery. Um, you can't have more than the other or other less than the other because for me i think it's the full balance of having everything connected that keeps you grounded who helps you find that balance like are you still married now do you still have uh are you still with your family or by the grace of god my wife did not leave me wow um through all of this she has been exceptional through everything i actually asked her about six months into sobriety i said why didn't you leave me and she just simply said, because I love you and I believed you could be the person that you were when I married you. Mm. She said, and that's why I didn't leave you, because I believed in you when you didn't believe in yourself. Dude, I, I, I cannot. I don't deserve it. I, I frankly, if I really think about it, everything that I did, thank God I was never physically abusive. Mm. But during my drinking days, I said the nastiest shit. Yeah. To the people that I love the most. And in typical alcoholic fashion, I'd wake up the next day, good morning. And she'd just look at me, are you kidding me right now? Well, what happened? You don't remember what you said and did last night? It must be nice to be an ass and act and do what you want and wake up the next morning with a clean slate. She's like, but the things that you do to me leave scars. And I can't, I can't forget those. And um, I remember her saying that to me. And not caring as an alcoholic, you know, I would just think, oh, she'll get over it in the next couple of days. Man, no big deal. But now that I'm sober and I've realized the damage mentally that I did to my family is going to take me a very long time to make up for. It's never going to go away because unfortunately, you know, I have, th I have three daughters and um, when I would come home, the house would scatter. They didn't know what dad was walking in the door. Don't know what to expect, right? It's unpredictable. They, An alcoholic they didn't know, father. Yeah, they didn't know if I was going to be the silly, giggly, goofy dad or the dropping of the pen would irritate me so much where I would yell and just be nasty and just get the hell out of here and cuss and be nasty. So I'd come home and they'd scatter. The gift of sobriety has given me, when I come home, everybody comes out wow. and talks to me and see how my day was. And we eat dinner together. We watch movies together. We play. We do things. Um, That's amazing, man. Recovery and sobriety has given me is beyond what they told me I would get back. I I'm not getting 10 times back. I'm getting 20 and 30 times back. Hmm. I'm getting things that I've never had. Plus on top of repairing the damage that I did. You know, I, being on these podcasts and being able to share my story with those still suffering is one of the biggest gifts I've ever gotten. The ability to help people who are in that hopelessness place that I found myself several times in hopes that something that I may say may help them in their time of need is a true, is a true gift given to me by a higher power. Um, you know, the, the first podcast I did was months and months ago. And um, four days after I get the po I do the podcast, I get this telephone call. And I pick up the phone. And he's like, is this Tim? 
And I'm like, yeah, who's this? He's like, this is Tony. And I'm like, man, I don't know damn Tony. Like, he's like from the Marines. I'm like, oh shit, okay. 1996. It's 2021. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, how'd you get my number, man? He goes, I got off of Facebook. You got a second to talk. And I'm like, yeah, what's going on? I said, you don't sound too good, man. He's like, I'm not doing good at all. He said, I've been addicted to pain pills for 18 years. He's like, but I had to reach out and call you. He said, because four days ago, I listened to your podcast. Wow. He's like, and it gave me hope. He goes, and I don't want to live this way anymore. He said, I've let down my family and my friends. He's like, I've been suicidal before. He's like, and what you said about never giving up and always believing in hope, he said, has given me the hope to do this. He goes, and I'm now four days sober. I was wow, like, that's, man. that's awesome, man. I talked to him last week. He's coming up on 80, I think it was 86 days clean no and sober. Almost three like, months. Man, you're giving, so maybe you received 20 times what you had or what you expected, but you're giving 20, 30 times what you receive as well. Cause you're sharing your story. You're out there helping people. You're helping your family. So that's, what's so amazing with seeing your story is how it's turned on its head to this person who was drinking and doing everything they could to make themselves feel better to now. Well, you tell me, I mean, is that, how do you change from those two people? How do you change from becoming this person who just has to drink and numb out every day of his life to now waking up with gratitude? How, what's that process like? Um, I truly believe I had that psychic change in recovery. I truly believe that my compulsion and obsession of, of addiction and drinking was lifted from me. And I believe I was given a gift to share with those still suffering. I truly believe this is my purpose now. I was searching for that purpose for 27 years. Right. And for me, that was my story. That was my journey that I had to go through in order to be grateful enough to receive the gift. I wasn't ready before. I wasn't ready to receive this, this life that was waiting for me because I wouldn't have appreciated it. I wouldn't have taken it as seriously as I do now. It would have been thrown out the window again, multiple times like I've done before with everything else. For me, this is life or death. If I pick up another drink or do another drug, it will kill me. And that's what I have set in my mind now. It's not, oh yeah, I got one more in me. That one more, is going to kill me. So I truly believe I, I received that psychic change in recovery, going to the meetings, working the steps, speaking, sharing. The more I share, the more I believe that this is my purpose. Um, you know, sometimes when I speak, shit just comes out of my mouth and I don't even know I'm going to say it. And, you know, I never believed in a higher power before, man. I, I'm going to be completely honest with you. You know, my, my family, we're, we grew up Catholic, but we only went to church on Easter and Sunday, Easter Sunday and, and Christmas. It wasn't like a big thing in my family. I always thought maybe there was something out there, but I never truly believed in, in God or Jesus. I never read the Bible and none of that stuff. But I can't explain to you what happened to me in that airport. I can't or at explain. at that memorial tree. I was just going to say that. Or that, at that memorial tree. Yeah. Those things are not coincidences. They came from some place other than where where we live here on on this on this physical planet. Mm. And if I was not to address that or take that as a sign from something else, what a shame or what a wasted life I would have now today. So I I'm coming after it, man. Like everything that alcohol promised to and took from me, I'm coming after it. I'm coming after it all. I'm, 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 I'm going to do as much as I can. I'm going to speak as much as I can. I'm going to do as much podcast as I can. Um, I was lucky enough to do an interview for a sober magazine a couple months ago. Cool. Uh, you know, the, it gets out there. I'm just going to be, I am going to share out loud because I use that loud. And what's a shame is the people who do suffer with mental illness and addictions, they feel as if it's a burden on them and they don't want to tell other people. They, they, you know, they think it's 
their problem alone and nobody else could possibly know the pain that they're going through and they're embarrassed you know a lot of i didn't want people to know i drank i thought nobody knew the funny thing was i was the last one to think that because everybody else knew exactly what the hell was going on yeah and the more i share the more i can get my my message out there hopefully the more people i could help to get up off their knees and realize that recovery is possible and we can live the life our higher power has waiting for us. We just have to go and get it. You're one of the rare few, I think, who is able to go through that rehab facility, able to go, go and do a 90 and 90. First of all, I feel like a lot of people aren't even able to do that. And then to stay sober that first year. What do you? What would you say to somebody else who went through that rehab, did the steps, or tried to do the steps, and then relapsed? Is there anything that you can share with somebody like that, or somebody who tries 10 times and then is still back in that car drinking? You know what? And I'm glad you said that, because in rehab, we were sitting in a class, and there were 60 of us, and the speaker said, look around. He said, 10% of you will be dead by next year. He wow. said, and, and only 10% of you in this room will still be sober within one year. My year passed two weeks ago out of the group of people that I hung out with. There was about 12 of us that hung out that were like be bonded in rehab and we were friends. We ate lunch together, breakfast, and we stayed together. There's only three of us that are sober. And out of the 60 people that were in our immediate processing group for rehab, four of us have passed away. Yeah. So those yeah. statistics are completely true and real. And that's scary because when you're in rehab and they tell you those statistics, I'm like, there's no way that many people fail. I truly believe that, you know, you and I could set up a rehab for somebody that we love that is going through a problem. You and I could take them to meetings. You and I could set up appointments with the psychiatrist. You and I could do all this stuff. It has to come from that person. Right. Unfortunately, it does take some people multiple times to finally get it. Unfortunately, some people don't get it and they lose their lives to this addiction. Yeah. I am one of the lucky ones. And I will say that because for me to be here after all the stuff I've put my body through, you know, when I got to rehab, they did physical tests. My liver was three times what it should have been. See, that's what I was, I was going to ask you about that actually. Yeah. Yeah. And the doctor told me, he goes, you're 44. He said, if you continue to drink like this for the next two to three years, you won't make it to 48. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, your liver enzymes are three times what they should be. Oh he said, you're, you have high blood pressure. He said, you're 44, you're 20, 25 pounds overweight. You know, if you were to look at my before picture and now, dude, I look like a completely different person. I, I don't, yeah. I, I remember coming home and scrolling through my pictures and looking down. I was like, holy shit, that's what I look like. And my wife said, yeah, I was like, wow, that that's awful. Like I'm unrecognizable Yeah. for the people that don't get it. All I would say is don't give up hope. Exactly. Don't give up hope. Keep going to the meetings. Keep believing that you can get sober. You can live the life of recovery. Don't give up on yourself. Stay positive. You know, this, this life of, of recovery truly is one day at a time. And I say that because we tend to start thinking about the weeks and months and years ahead. And I did in my early recovery, man, I can't drink ever for the rest of my life. And that gave me anxiety, gave me panic attacks. But if you think that far ahead, even it doesn't matter what it is. If you think that far ahead with anything in life, your bills, uh, you know, oh, I need a new car in the next six months, whatever. It's going to bring that that anxiety and that fear and that panic in you because we don't know what's going to happen in the future. So why worry about it? Make the best of your life today because you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. As long as you do what you have to do for today, before you know it, those days have turned into weeks, those weeks have turned into months, those months have turned into years. And then you have the ability to look back a year later and say, holy shit, I did it. I made it a year sober and clean. And look at all the wonderful things that have happened to me over this past year. You know, on my one year anniversary, I got to speak and my mom and my, my wife were there and they asked them to come up and speak. And the one thing my wife said, she said, our house is so peaceful now. She's like, I come in, 
There's no turmoil. There's no anxiety. I don't have the fear of what I'm coming home to because sometimes I really didn't want to walk through that door because I never knew who was sitting on the couch. Mm. She goes, my life has become so peaceful now and I'm so grateful for Tim's recovery. And, you know, my mom said something, which I never knew until my one year that she said, you know, my son never knew this, but you know, we argued every time that I talked to my mom on the phone, I would always hang up screaming and cussing at my mother for some reason or the other. And she said, and every time I hung up, I would cry myself to sleep. She said, and I would pray to God that he would find hope and recovery and become sober. She said, and this is the first time I'm saying this in front of a group of 30 people. And that's the first time I heard it. I mean, I I teared up knowing that I made my mother cry. He was in her 70s every night. I made my mother pray for her son to get sober. And she turned around to me and she said, all I ever wanted was for you to be healthy, happy, and sober. And I, I received my prayer. Congratulations on your one year. Dude, that, 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 that gift of that is, you can't put a price on that. Hmm. You know, the first nine months of my recovery, my oldest daughter, who's 24, didn't speak to me. Uh, my daughter's 24, 14, and 10. The, the middle one and the youngest one got over it quicker. But my oldest one has seen everything. She saw more, I was about to say. yeah. She's seen everything for the first nine months. And she lives with me. She didn't say anything to me, didn't look at me, come in through the door, go right upstairs to her bedroom. On the ninth month of my recovery, I receive a text message from my daughter. And it simply says, Dad, I know we haven't spoken, but I just wanted you to know how proud I am of you and that I love you. Thank you for giving me the space to heal because I know you were healing as well, but I just want you to know how proud I am of you and I truly love you. Dude, the gifts that recovery has given me, man, is um, is beyond my wildest dreams. You make me cry, man. It's amazing, man. I, I just, I'm, I'm the luckiest man alive. I truly believe I, I'm one of the luckiest people to be alive. And you know, I've read something the other day. Do you know the probability of you actually being born? You know what the statistics are? Oh, it's it's not. It's like Dude, so low, it's, right? No, the probability that you were born, Adrian, you were born, is one in four hundred trillion. Oh God, that's the odds. <laughs> yeah. So that's truly how special we are to be here on this. You already earth. won the craziest lottery in the world just to be it's, here. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not going to waste it anymore. I wasted 27 years of my life. Yeah. When you said how lucky you were, that's what came to mind. Is like, no, you know what? You're not that lucky. You just realize how lucky you are. You realize what you have. And so many people don't see it. And that's yes. what makes you different today is that you can see and you can be grateful for. It's not that you have anything new that yeah. nobody else has. It's that you can see it and appreciate it in such a powerful way. Absolutely. Man. My perspective of life has completely changed. Yeah. One hundred percent, and you know, and it's funny because that I put that to the test about three, four weeks ago. I was at the gym, and uh, one of the people that I always speak to at the gym comes in, and, and uh, she was like, "I was like, how's your day?" She's like, "I had to go to work this morning." She goes, "Now I got to come to the gym, then I got to go home and fix dinner." And I and it took me about ten seconds, and I looked at her, and I was said, "Change one word in that sentence," and she said, "What do you mean?" I say, "I get to go to work this morning." I get mm. to go to the gym and I get to go home and make dinner for my family. I said, some people don't have a job. They live, they're homeless. Some people are not physically able to go to the gym and take care of themselves physically. I said, and some people don't have families. I said, so be grateful for all three of those things. And she kind of just looked at me, didn't know what to say and kind of just walked off. And I like kind of like looked a couple times over and I don't know if I saw a change, but I know it was definitely up in her head of what I said. Because that is 100% correct. My perspective of everyday life has completely changed. That's incredible, man. I am so excited for you and so excited to see what else you do in your recovery. May you have many more years like this one and better. Because it just gets better, I think. The more, like Sarah from Sober Gratitudes, you know, she talks about like, I'm I'm younger than, than you guys. But like she talks about having so much of this sober time and just how that perspective grows and changes. And I think. I'm I'm really excited to see what comes of this for you and as you live that purpose to its fulfillment, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Like my sponsor said, he goes, Okay, you got through the first year. He goes, Now the work begins. 
I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, now but you when get, he... you get to do that work, you know? Yes. Yes. And I look forward to it. You know what I mean? He's like, he's like the first year he said, you're just learning to be sober and learning to live in recovery. And he's like, now the work begins. Now you start going mm. chasing your dreams. Now you start going through everything that you really wanted to do in life and you commit to something and you make it happen. You don't have all these empty promises that you do when you're drinking or you're drugging. Mm. Yeah, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll get to it. I'll do it. And you never do it. Now's the time to actually put your feet on the pavement and make things happen. One year from now, what are you going to be able to look back on? What are you going to be able to say that, hey, I did this, I achieved this, this is who I am? Uh, my goal for this this second year of sobriety is um, I definitely I, I, I want to do that bodybuilding competition to say I did it. Yeah, June. After June. Um, I've really been, you know, people have been telling me to to write down my story and possibly do a book, man. And there we go. And to be honest with you, you know, when I share my story in the podcast, I, I try to bring it down into a 45 minute or an hour, but I have a lot of crazy stories, a lot of shit that I've done in, in my active addiction. Um, I have a lot more experiences from a spiritual higher power that I don't throw in there. Um, I just talk about the two main ones that, that really had an impact on my life. I really think I, I would like to to write down some things and, and see where that goes. And I don't want to say I'm going to write a book in case I don't do that, but I want to start filling a journal full of words right. to possibly become a book one day. There you go. I was going to mention it. I'm glad you said it already because I was going to I was going to ask for that and and try and help manifest that because yeah, it's I I'm only getting we're only getting in this podcast a little sneak peek, right? A very sliver of the life that you've had. So I think it's, uh, yeah, you have a story to share, man. Absolutely. I, I believe that's what my purpose is now, man. I'm coming for it, man. I really am. Well, listen, Tim, thank you so much for your time and for coming on the show and sharing as vulnerably as you do. I I'm really grateful. You talk about being grateful for these things. I'm grateful to get to be on this side of the camera and just hear your story, help share your story. So thank you, man. And thank you for doing the podcast, man, because the, the people like you that do the podcast are what give me the ability to share. So what you're doing is amazing and keep doing what you're doing. I love it. Thank you so much for having me on. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of The Addictive Pod. If you enjoyed hearing Tim's story, he is on a bunch of other podcasts, and I'm sure that book is going to be coming out soon. So keep an eye on his Instagram. I'm going to put a link in the description below so you can follow him and stay tuned for what he has to offer the recovery community. My Instagram is at addictive podcast. You can follow me there to stay up to date with my show and shoot me a, shoot me a message on there. Let me, let me know some feedback about what you thought about this episode, what you liked, what you didn't like, or who you want to hear on future episodes. I love to hear from you guys and I love to have recommendations from the audience. That's it for me today. Until next Wednesday, remember, we recover together.